0: Have I got good news for you? You know, all those changes in the last year, it's a pandemic. It's not a pandemic. Social distance six feet apart, social distance three feet apart. The election's not over. The election's over finally and unexpected blizzards. I don't think I'm the only one who's been challenged, maybe even threatened by having to deal with all of these constant changes in our lives. But here's the good news. God has not changed. Malachi 3.6, I am the Lord. I change not. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Ecclesiastes 5, 2, God is in heaven. He's still there. He's still the same, and he is still the ultimate source, the ultimate giver of the ultimate gift that has brought goodness into my life. Please don't let 2020 and all that has come to mean confuse you. God did not send the bad things into this world. He's not the source of the bad. Now, while some people might say he's on your side, I think a better way to think of it is God has actively and intentionally given you a way to be at his side. That's some really good news. And I hope that it encourages you just as much as it encourages and strengthens me. It's a really important message of comfort for us right now. We have had a challenging time lately, haven't we? But this is not a new message. It's exactly the same message that James gave to the the 12 tribes of the Diaspora, those who had scattered our earliest brethren who gathered together in Jerusalem and then spread apart because of the persecution that Rome was enacting on them. They had life hard. I mean, life was really hard for them. people were after them wanting to kill them. Life was hard, but life was worth it. Because God had given these people, our earliest brethren, the right to become his children through the word of truth. When they exercised that right, they became the first fruits. As Shana Kay said last night, the first generation of Christians. Christians who who were there in the very beginning that we are now descendants of by relationship through Christ. But there's an even deeper meaning to that word First fruits. It's those things who are, and in our case, those people who are specially consecrated and dedicated to God. They were the first fruits then, and we are the first fruits now. That's the point of James chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. I told Shana Kay last night she said the things about those verses I didn't have time to say, so I was grateful for that. Those verses aren't part of our, our listed text according to our assignment today, but they lay the foundation for what we do want to say. I hope you all have your Bibles. Please open to James chapter 1. We're going to read beginning in verse 17, and we will read down through the end of the chapter. This is our assigned text um, after after verses 17 and 18. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, He is likened to a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, This man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. All right, our assigned text then begins in in verse 19. And in verse 19, James is making a connection from what the people knew that God is the ultimate giver of the ultimate gifts and that every good thing comes from Him, even our salvation, and especially our salvation. He's making the connection from what we know to what we should be doing, to how we should be living in Christ. And he has three um, important dis- com- commands for us. These commands, the way he, he expresses these terms, it makes me think of a coach in front of his team. It says, all right, people, you know what to do. We've been over and over and over this. Now get out there and do it. And so what is it James is commanding his team, the ones that he calls his beloved brethren, and by extension us, to do? What is it he says to do? Three things. Be swift to hear slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Now, swift to hear. You know when your kids are not swift to hear. You have to get their attention. You have to put your hands on either side of their face, make them look right at you, and shake them sometimes. Pay attention to me. God says through James, I want you to be swift to hear the knowledge of God. It's like the man in Psalm chapter 1 who meditates on the the Word of God day and night. This is a, a very focused Attention that remembers who God is and what he has done for us. It's a focused attention that says because of who you are and what you've done, this is who I am and what I want to do. Being swift to hear means I actively and passionately pursue hearing the word of God. We are to be slow to speak. Swift to hear and slow to speak. Now if you come into the Panama Street Church of Christ building you will find in the ladies classroom a sign across the back of the room that says april slow down when i teach i tend to talk fast and the lady said slow down so i'll put up a sign to make me remember that is that what we're talking about here slow to speak does it mean slow your speech down that's not what it's talking about and i, I gotta tell you this one kind of kind of got me just a little bit in the conscience, conscience. um It didn't just step on my toes. It kind of knocked me down and then ran me over with a tank, one of the big ones, okay? My mind knows that Proverbs 29, 20 says, Seest thou a man hasty in his words, there is more hope of a fool than in him. I know that the Bible says that. But then my mouth will start, did you think about, or hey, what about, and sometimes I haven't even heard the whole story. And that's wrong, and I've got to work on that. And we all need to work on the misuses of our tongue, don't we? The tongue is that unruly member, and we'll talk more about that later. But right here we need to remember that we have to be slow to speak, but this is a very specific usage of the term. It's not just in general life. Just like we are to be quick to hear, to pursue the knowledge of God, we are to be slow to speak the knowledge of God. We don't need to talk about God until we know what we're talking about. And I know you've had teachers in the past where you wondered, why did they waste my time? They stood up there talking, and I got nothing from it. There was no value. Don't be that kind of person. That's what James is saying. Don't be the kind of person that wastes the time of your listeners. Now, here we are today talking about the book of James. And I intend to to speak to you straight from the text, so it shouldn't be a waste, not because of me, but because God inspired the word. James says, be slow to speak. Job had to learn this lesson. Please go back with me to Job chapter 38. You remember in the book of Job, his friends had talked to him. Job, just confess your sin. Just tell us what you've done. Repent. Bless. pray to God. Let's get this over with. Just tell us what you've done. And Job justifies himself when Job should have been justifying God. In chapter 38, the, the chapter here begins with God's conversation with Job. Conversation with maybe more like lecture too. Verse 1, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Now we don't talk that way over in Alabama. I'm guessing y'all don't talk that way here in Texas either. What is God saying here? God says, who is it that is muddying the waters? Who is this making it harder to understand because he doesn't know what he's talking about? Job picked up on this. Turn over to Job chapter 42. When the Lord is finished talking, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Recognize the question. Job's repeating the question. Slightly different wording, but repeating the question that the Lord asked him at the beginning of chapter 38. And then see what he says. Therefore... Have I uttered that I understood not things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. Job talked when he didn't know what he was talking about. We need to learn Job's lesson and make sure that we are slow to speak as well. The Hebrews writer says in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, Therefore, for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which should be the first principles of God. You ought to be teachers. You Ought to be teachers. But James also says in chapter 3 and verse 1, My brethren, be not many masters or teachers, for they shall receive the greater condemnation. Now this seems like a contradiction. You ought to be teachers. Don't too many of you be teachers. What does it mean? James is pointing out that you need to do it with the right motive and the right heart. You don't stand before a crowd to be seen. You don't stand before a crowd so that they can hear your words of wisdom. But you need to be standing before a group and teaching. We all ought to be teachers, and we need to do it with the right heart and the right knowledge. Let's look at Psalm chapter 131 and get David's perspective. In Psalm chapter 131, David says, Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor mine eyes lofty, neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. I was excited to see a number of young ladies coming in today. Young ladies, you need to grow up to be a teacher. You absolutely need to grow up to be a teacher when for the time you ought to be teachers. That means there's a time in your future, maybe even your present, when you need to be teachers. But don't go into the classroom until you know what you're talking about because you will waste the time of your listeners and you do not bring glory to God. And since that's what we need to be doing as Christians, that's what we need to be doing as Christians. We are to be um, swift to hear and slow to speak and then slow to wrath. Now, wrath here, it means violent emotion resulting in uncontrolled anger and improper indignation. Improper indignation. When I read through this and started studying, it made me think about the riots of 2020. Uncontrolled anger, improper indignation. That's, that's just what came to mind, the 2020 riots. So let me ask you this. How successful do you think we would have been to enter those crowds and begin teaching about God? Anybody here think we would have been successful? Yeah, I didn't think so. Those hearts were full of violence. They were full of anger. They were full of improper, unrighteous indignation. They had no room for God. And we can see this in the Bible in the character Naaman, can't we? Behold, I thought, he said, I thought God was going to act in a certain way. I thought Elisha was going to act in a certain way. And they didn't act the way I expected them to, and I'm going to get mad. And he got angry. The Bible says he went away in a rage. He was mad. He could not be healed of his leprosy until he got the anger out of the way. Once he did that, then he could do what he needed to do. He could do his part in being healed. And we can see that so easily in the obviously unrighteous, can't we? Can we see it equally as easily in the supposed to be righteous? What if an older woman gently and lovingly comes to you to say that your daughter's dress is immodest? How are you going to react then? Are you going to be righteously indignant? Well, would that be righteously indignant? Would it be? Are you so angry that she chose to speak to you that you can't even see how much skin your daughter's showing? What if the elders come to visit us in our home to encourage us to live more faithfully? Are you going to get angry at that? After all, my children heard that, or my parents know that. Now my parents know what's going on. How could you have done that to me? Are you so angry that they came, or are you grateful that they loved you enough to come? Do we get indignant if someone doesn't wear a mask? The ultimate question is, is your righteous indignation truly righteous? See, our anger needs to be reserved for things that offend the holiness of God, not for things that offend our sensibilities. If it's not, we can't be working righteousness. If it's not, we can't be right with God. This verse reminded me so much of a young lady named Monica that I met last fall. She visited us at Panama Street for several weeks. We tried to get to know her. She was very private. She attended our ladies' Bible class, and she recognized the fact that I stick to the book. I don't spout off a lot of opinions in class. I stick to the book, and I, I, as I always do, and I'm sure you all do too, I, I invited her to study the Bible with me. Um, I knew that the the topic we were studying was more suited for Christians than for non-Christians. I encouraged her to email me with any questions that she had, and she chose to do so. As you all would have done, I answered from the book, because my opinions didn't have any place in that conversation. So I, I answered from the book, and the result was she quit coming. Monica quit coming. I was able to get her to meet with me, and I was hoping to address whatever questions she had to get her to come back and to to study with me at least. She tried to give me a a number of pretty complicated reasons why she wasn't going to come back. But here was the bottom line. Here's the quote. I felt like you didn't give me a voice. You see, she wanted the right to have her own opinion and her own behavior. And because I had showed her what the Bible says, she felt like I didn't hear her voice. She was slow to hear. She was quick to speak, and she was quick to anger, exactly the opposite of what James wants us to do in this verse. I'm I'm still disturbed that I wasn't able to have more success with her. But I taught the truth, and that's all that God expects of me. All right, it's a weird question time, and my best friends, they will tell you that I like to ask weird questions. So here you go. Here's your weird question of the day. If you had wax stuck in your ears and it was causing you to not be able to hear very well, what would you do about it? Would you want it to come out? Would you want to do whatever it took to to get that out so that you could hear well again? Or would you be satisfied to leave it there? Most of us, I think. I don't think it's a stretch. I think I can safely speak for you. I think we're all going to want to get it out, aren't we? Okay, I'm getting some nods at least. We're all going to want to get that out of our our ears. This is the picture that James paints for us in James chapter 1 and verse 21 with the word filthiness. Back in the first century, in medical terms, the Greek word for filthiness meant that yucky, sticky, smelly wax we have in our ears. In a spiritual sense, James is saying to us, we must get out of our lives any filthiness any sin that is keeping you from receiving the word of God. The King James wording here, all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, that makes me think of the world of Noah. Does it you? Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, the Bible says, the wickedness of man was only evil continually, and every thought of a man's heart was only evil continually. Everything was bad. Everything was bad and evil. Violence, all right, except Noah the one who did according to all that God commanded him. So did he, Genesis 6, 22 and 7, 5. This is the man that Peter called a preacher of righteousness in 2 Peter 2 and verse 5. Can you imagine Noah using phrases like right to choose or alternate lifestyle? That's not the way Noah talked, was it? He was a preacher of righteousness. And yet our world is filled to the brim and running over, this overflowing of filth. That's our world today. It reminds me of the world that Jeremiah preached to the the nation of Judah, the city of Jerusalem, who could not see how evil they were. In Jeremiah 6.15, he wrote, "'Were they ashamed when they had committed abominations? Nay, they were not at all ashamed. Neither could they blush.'" Ladies, when was the last time you saw somebody in the world blush at what was going on in our society? It just doesn't happen anymore. And yet today we have filth. We have a lot of filth in this world. Addiction to tobacco and alcohol and recreational drugs, it's filthiness. Homosexuality is filthiness. Gender fluidity is filthiness. You know, that's when a guy wants to be a girl and a girl wants to be a guy. Violence is filthiness. Pornography is filthiness. And on and on and on, the list could go. God hates every sin. And God requires that we put All of our sins away, not just the ones I mentioned, but all of our sins away before we can put on the robes of righteousness. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 10 is very explicit. You have to put on this, put off this sin and this sin and this sin and this sin, and and then you can put on these good things. But you got to get rid of the bad before you can take on the good. The man who is swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath and who lays aside this overflowing of wickedness, all the sins that God condemns in his word, he has prepared his heart to receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. At first glance, this sounds like the original, the the, um, first step to salvation. You have to hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. It sounds like we are going to receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save our souls the first time, but we have to remember James is speaking to Christians. He's speaking to people who have already done this. So what does this verse mean to us? It means we need to remember that being saved isn't a one-time thing. The word is able to save us, but it is only able to save us if we have engrafted it, if we have implanted it, buried it, allowed it to take root in our hearts and to define who we are and to inform our actions. That's what receiving the word means. James was writing to Christians. We remember that this, this act of, of having the word able to save our souls, our part is to allow it to do that for a lifetime. It's a lifestyle, not a once in a while thing. Paul commanded the Philippians in chapter 2 and verse 12 to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, you can never know enough. I can never know enough. And the folks in here who are way smarter than I am can never know enough to get to go to heaven we, we can't do it. it it's not possible we can't know enough and we can't do enough to merit eternal life but without works of faith we will merit eternal death James, James covers this in depth in chapter 2 our works of faith are required but they are not sufficient on their own Being in a covenant relationship is necessary to go to heaven. We have to be in that covenant relationship with God. Being a member of the church that Jesus died to purchase is necessary. Without it, we cannot be um, saved in the end. But it's not enough. Neither of those is enough. There's more. And James tells us what the more is. In verse 22, he says, be ye doers of the word. The more is the doing. That's the full meaning of receive, and we understand what it means. Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. If we receive the word, it means we're going to do something. It doesn't just stop once it gets past where that wax used to be. If you are here at focal point and you are engaged in the lessons, if you're truly interested, if you're maybe taking notes or even marking your Bible, that's wonderful, but let me ask you this. Are you letting the Bible mark you? We can't lie to ourselves. Listening, even active, engaged listening, is not enough. The word, the, the phrase here, be ye doers, this is fascinating in the Greek. The, the, the verb here is in the present middle imperative. Now, present means we can't just do it one time and it's done. It means we do it, that's our start, and then we keep on doing it forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, as the little ones would say. Present. Middle means we have to do it for ourselves, you can't do it for me. I can't do it for you. No person can, can make someone else obey, and God won't make anyone else obey. He gives us free will. And imperative means it's a command. You got to do it. If you want to be pleasing to God, if you want to be righteous before him, if you want to be in the proper standing with God, you have to do this. You have to hear the word and do it. Be you doers. Now, the word do here, James did not use just a a generic word for do. In in Greek and Latin, there are a variety of of, um, words that mean do in English. Okay, He didn't use a generic do word, a word that can mean a habitual action even. He used a very specific word. This Greek word, poetai, sounds very much like the English word poet, and that's where we get our poet from. Now, a poet is a very creative person, right? A creative writer, he writes beautiful poetry. The Greek word that he chose here, poetai, has a very specific meaning. It indicates a creative process that springs from the heart and motivates us to act. I love that meaning. Here's my question for you When's the last time you did Christianity creatively? You see, we get into our habits of our Christian life. We study our Bibles at the same time every day, I hope. We do good deeds. We're always here on time, ready to study, ready to worship, ready to glorify God. It's a habitual thing for us. But are we doing it creatively? When's the last time you've learned a new way to serve your father? I'm not talking about coming up with a new gospel. Um, Galatians chapter 1 says, no, no, you can't do that. I'm not talking about developing a new interpretation. Can't do that either. Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. I'm talking about when's the last time you actively sought a new thing to do to serve your father because it helps you grow as a Christian and helps you bring blessings to other people. You need to be creative in your Christian life. Even more is your Christian life a beautiful work of harmony like a well-crafted poem is. The fact is, and I know this, today I'm talking to folks we would consider the cream of the crop spiritually. The ones who put extra effort, extra work, and extra energy and extra money for some of us into getting here so that we can hear God's word discussed and exegeted and applied. You're the ones who rearranged your lives to be here so that you could hear Fascinating to me that the meaning of the word that James uses that we translate "hearers" in verse 22. Again, this is a very specific word. In the first century, it meant someone who attends a series of lectures. You guys are hearers, just like the first century, except I hope not, because there's another piece of it. That definition I gave you is not complete. In James's day, these were people who attended a series of lectures but never became genuine disciples. You see, ladies, it's great that you're here today and your presence speaks well of you. But if here is all there is, even if it's a passionate involved here, it won't be enough to take you over there in the end. Be you doers of the word. Verses 23 through 25 then, James contrast a hearer not doer with a hearer doer. These are probably some of the more um, popular, more famous and easily understood passages in the book of James. This is the man who looks into a mirror and sees what's wrong. It's not a casual glance. Sometimes you'll hear um, hear teachers say this is a casual glance versus a more involved look later on, but it's not. This man is, is standing in front of the mirror actively seeking out, actively beholding what might be wrong with his appearance but then he goes away without doing anything. Now, realize James did not say that the man did not take the time to look, that he didn't care enough to look. It doesn't say that James did not recognize what needed, that this man did not recognize what needed fixing or did not know how to fix or wasn't willing to take the time to fix. What it says is he went away. The idea is that life got in the way and he forgot what he was supposed to be doing. Life got in the way. We've had some of that in the last year, haven't we? Ladies, while you're at focal point, and at other times, but we're talking about focal point at this moment, you're going to be asked to look into the mirror of God's word over and over again. Do you see anything in your life that needs fixing? As I was preparing for this lesson, I did. Shana Shana Kay announced that I um, I had just finished my master's degree. That was nine days ago now. Just got done. I feel like my brain is still mushed. I have to tell you, my confession time. While I was finishing school this last semester, my Bible study was not what it needed to be. I've had to fix that. I've had to realize that and fix that with my father. Here's my challenge to you. If you behold the word of God this week and discover that your life is not perfectly in step with what you see in this mirror, please don't get distracted. Please don't let life get in the way of eternal life take the time to bring this back to your mind and to fix it sometimes our problem is so far in the past that we have forgotten about it we just don't really think about it well not much anymore but God still knows and if we want to go to heaven then we need to bring those things back to our mind no matter how old they are and no matter how many people do or don't know. We need to bring them back to our minds and correct them in the God-approved way and then get back to work, working righteousness before our Father. All right, back to the text in verse 25. Whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty. There are so many people in our world today who view the New Testament as a love letter. There are others who view it as a book of grace. And I got news for you. They're both right, as long as they're not saying it's exclusively that. Because you see, the perfect law of liberty is also a book of law. It's a book of rules and commands that we are to follow if we're going to be pleasing to Christ, if we are going to get to go to heaven in the end. It's laws. John chapter 8 and verse 51, Jesus said, if you know these things, you have to do them to have eternal life. If you don't do these things, you're going to die. I want to live, so I want to do them. The perfect law of liberty, the the meaning of the perfect there, it's the last law, it's the complete law, and it's the last law that God will ever give us. It's the last will and testament. It is a law of liberty. Some people say, I can't do that. That is so hard. I can't do it. But first John 5, 3 says God's word is not burdensome. It's not grievous. It's not hard to do. I would so much rather, and I, I have literally thanked my father that I live under the law of Christ and not the law of Moses because the, the idea of all those animals being put to death, and I, I'm not, I believe we should kill and eat animals, okay, and hunt. I, I believe in hunting. This isn't about that, but I don't want to have to gather animals up and take them to the temple or the tabernacle to have to kill them for sacrifice. I am grateful that my Savior has made that sacrifice once for me, and I simply do what he says, and that's what's required. I do what the law of liberty says because when I do, it sets me free. I can be free in Christ. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1. I'm free because he died for me. He died for me and then he rose again. Now go with me back in your minds to that morning, that Sunday morning when John and Mary and Peter approached the empty tomb. Watch as they stoop down to look inside the tomb. You imagine that they just glanced in and left? That's not what the word means. Watch them. They're trying to soak in every detail. They see the the linen clothes that were wrapped about his body in one place and the napkin wrapped about his face in another place. They try to soak in every detail. This is a a once-in-a-lifetime. This is a once-in-the-history-of-the-world event. They wanted to know everything they could. They wanted to see it and drink it in. That is the kind of looking we're supposed to do when we pick up the perfect law of liberty. It's the intentional looking at to get every detail out of it, to squeeze every bit of information out of it, every bit of strength and encouragement and hope so that I can know everything that God wants me to know and to do. When my looking and keep on looking turns into doing and keeps on doing, The Lord will bless me in what I do. That's the end of the verse. This man will be blessed in his deed. You remember Joseph? Genesis chapter 39 and verse 2 says, The Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man. Joseph did what he was supposed to do in a foreign land with nobody around him to help. In fact, there were a lot of people around him to hinder him. And he did righteousness before God, and God was with him. What about Esther? She was um, pretty powerless in her position. And yet she exercised the power she had and saved an entire nation in such a time as this. Remember Ezra, he was going back to Jerusalem to teach the people, had to te- tell them again what the law of Moses said. And the Bible says that the good hand of the Lord was upon him because he had prepared himself beforehand. Ezra chapter seven, verses nine and 10. Remember Jesus' promise to you in John thirteen seventeen. if you know this thing, If you know these things, blessed are ye if you do them. Sometimes we have to be careful about the things we know. You see, it's possible that we don't know what we think we know. James has earlier warned us about the self-deception of believing that hearing is enough when doing is the right response to God's love. But in verse 26, he warns against the self-deception that being outwardly religious is enough to be righteous. Because you see... This man did not know how to keep his tongue in check. He did not know how not to speak when he shouldn't speak. This is pretty pointed, isn't it? If I forsake the assembly, I sin, Hebrews 10:25). But if I attend the assembly, and as far as everyone else around me can see, and as far as my own heart intends, I worship faithfully in spirit and truth, John 4:24). I properly engage in every act of worship, and then I leave and fail to control my tongue, I am lost in sin. That's what James is saying. It's that pointed and it's that important. He even goes so far as to say that if this is how you behave, your worship was an empty act. It's vain. It didn't mean anything. You can't get around the fact that James is explicit that God expects us to keep our tongues under control. Lying, gossiping, murmuring and whining, profanity including euphemisms, you can't just make it softer, unrighteous judgment, idle words, blasphemy, slander, proud talk, creating discord between brethren, putting others down, denying Christ, and remaining silent when you should be his oracles, and being argumentative, all involve the tongue, and all are condemned condemned in scripture. I've got this great visual that I don't have time to go through, but it shows It's got six different little poems for kids describing misuses of the tongue. And people always say, that's great for our kids. But the point I want to make to you, I created this for a ladies' Bible class. Because we are the ones who teach the little ones how to talk. They learn from what we say. And we've got to be careful with the use of our tongue. Here's what misuse might look like so we know how to recognize it. What if we sing angry words, oh, let them never and then lash out in anger when one of our kids accidentally spills the milk? What if you sing, the gospel is for all, and then speak negatively or derogatorily about a person of another race? What if you see sing, a worker I will be, and go home complaining that those elders expect me to take time out of my... Don't they know what I have to do? Don't they know all my responsibilities, and yet they're expecting me to help out with the work of the church? What if you sing, count your blessings and you grumble throughout the week because you think you deserve more stuff than you have? What if you amen the prayers for the sick, but you never do anything for them? What if you sing, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, in the worship service, but throughout the week, you pepper your speech with, Oh, my God, and other such profanities? What if you thank the preacher for his sermon on your way out and then roast him alive on the way home? What if you sing, what a fellowship, but you never choose to see your brethren outside the service, ladies? The tongue is an unruly evil full of deadly poison james three eight and when we misuse it, we not only make our religion vain, we also make ourselves guilty of the whole law, James chapter two and verse ten. in contrast then to vain religion, at the very end of our chapter, James teaches us what pure and undefiled religion involves. This is a practice of religion that has both a positive and a negative side. And he begins with the positive side. Pure and undefiled religion means helping those who need help. Now in English, it says the fatherless and the widows. These are people who have experienced death. And because of death in their family, they have certain needs, special needs. They have affliction to deal with. But in the Greek, it meant not just people who have suffered death, divorce, desertion. Any disaster that takes away the stability and love... And financial support of a home. Financial support is included in this. Galatians chapter 6, verses 2 and 10, um, and 1 Timothy chapter 2, all talk about us supporting, financially supporting those who are in need. We need to do so both corporately, as a body, the church, and individually. It's interesting to me that history tells us that during the first century, newborns were left outside to die. Especially, but not only if they were girls, if the family did not want them, if the family could not care for them, that we have an extant a letter from a, a man off at war who wrote back home, said, um, I, "I know you're about to have this baby. We can't really afford them, so just leave them outside to die." It was the practice of the day. But you know what the practice of Christians was? The Christians were known as the people who rescued those children and took them in and allowed them to live a life. My question to us is, when those in the future look back at us, will they identify us as Christians too? Foster care and adoption are boots on the ground approaches to solving this problem. And I have a dear friend who traveled all the way to Africa to adopt two precious souls. I can't tell you how much I admire that. But you know what she said to me? This broke my heart. She said, no one was in line behind me. We're not doing very much of this anymore. Christians aren't doing very much of this anymore. It's not reasonable to assume everyone can do that. It's also not godly to assume you can't. You need to actually consider whether or not you can do it. But if you can't go that distance, you can do something. You can offer respite care to foster parents or uh, parents in a children's home. You can volunteer, mentor, offer your professional services to children's homes. You can help a family adopt through an organization like a, um, a home for Joe Lee. It's a foundation that helps financially as a family, a Christian family tries to adopt. We don't all have the same opportunities, but we do have all. All have the same expectation. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10, As therefore we have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially those of the household of faith. Widows is next. I was never an orphan, but here I am as a widow, and I know things now that I never knew before. For example, when my husband was alive, we don't have elders at Panama Street, so the men manage the activities of the church through business meetings. When he was alive, I knew what happened because he would come home and tell me. Nobody comes home and tells me now. And there are times I don't know what's going on because nobody stops to tell me. We're working on that at Panama Street. If you have widows in the congregation, make sure they know what's going on. You see, this, this loss of our husband is a sense of belonging. And when we're not connected to the information in the church, we feel a very real sense that we don't belong to the church anymore anymore. Um, My husband was a graduate of the Memphis School of Preaching, and one of the things I realized at the first lectureship after he died, I'm not a preacher's wife anymore, I don't belong anymore. the president of the Alumni Association corrected that misunderstanding, and they make sure, in fact, since I commented to him, he's made sure that everyone gets, gets the news that goes on. We need to take care of our widows. We take care of us in our affliction. We've got afflictions. We've got things going on. I have to have help with my car. I have to have help with my yard work. We need help. Sometimes I need a visit, and that means a social call. Sometimes I need a visit that means assistance. You have to ask. Now, Matt Wallin, if you're on Facebook, I want you to look up Matt Wallin, W-A-L-L-I-N, He has recently posted a form that his congregation gives out. If you can't find it, come come to me and I'll show it to you. Part of the the, um, paper says these are the things I need help with physically. These are the things I need help with spiritually. And they give this out to their widows every month. Psalm 68 verse 5 says, A father of the fatherless and a judge of the widows is God in his holy habitation. We need to be active in these areas because God is The negative part of pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to keep yourself unspotted from the world. Any sin that you commit is a spot that damages your robes of righteousness. And if left uncleaned by the blood of Christ, that you access through prayer as a Christian, if left uncleaned, you become a spot and blemish on the church, the bride of Christ, and you will not be part of the bride when it's presented to God in the end of time. We must keep ourselves unspotted from the world. Here's our questions as we close, our very practical questions as we review James chapter 1. During this last year of changes and challenges, how did you do? Did you remember that God is in control even though it felt like the government was micromanaging our lives? Or did you give in to the fear that Satan is peddling? First Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of sound mind. Have you worshipped in spirit and truth every Sunday without fail or did you just turn on your computer and watch? You told yourself you were speaking up against something that, that was just wrong, but were you instead speaking unnecessarily or even hurtfully about a matter of opinion? Were you glued to the news keeping up with COVID case counts or death tolls or have you stayed glued to the word? finding peace, strength, and comfort? Did you allow the trials of 2020 to sidetrack you and distract you or to mature you, to mature your faith, as James mentioned in verses one, 3 and 4? Have you deceived yourself about your religion or do you see yourself the way God sees you? Ladies, God is still in his heaven and time still stands. You can make 2021 and every day of the rest of your life exactly what God wants you to make it, practically righteous, and righteously practical, shall we?